Thank you, Laura and Betty. Wonderful job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Acts chapter number 15. Acts chapter number 15. I want to bring you a message entitled, Is it Grace Plus Works? If you've been with us in our study of the book of Acts, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey at the end of chapter 14. And while they were still sharing about their experiences in Antioch, we're told in verse number one of chapter 15, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The church's mission to the Gentiles had been gathering momentum. The trickle of Gentile conversions had now become a flood. And the problem was, how are these Gentile converts going to be amalgamated into a predominantly Jewish body? The message that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching is a very, very simple one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. They believe salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. These Gentile converts were being welcomed into the fellowship by baptism without circumcision. They were becoming Christians without first having to become Jews. Now, the specific issue of circumcision has long since passed away as a concern for us on a theological and spiritual level. But the principle behind this problem is very, very present with us today. The enemy has simply changed the issues. You can substitute baptism or separation issues or speaking in tongues or the necessity of good works in the place of circumcision and you bring the problem right up to date. They said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Well, what is the problem and why is that so dangerous? They were attempting to mix law and grace. To add anything, whether it's baptism, good works, or whatever it may be, as a requirement for salvation is to diminish grace. Paul puts it very clearly in his letter to the Galatian church in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, you foolish Galatians, this is the New International Version, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh. Now you can just imagine how Satan wanted to take advantage of this situation. First, he wanted the false doctrine of works righteousness to succeed. 
But even if that didn't work, Satan wanted a costly, bitter, doctrinal war that would completely split and sour the church. In fact, this may be the greatest threat to the work of the gospel seen thus far in the book of Acts. The problems that confronted the church at Antioch might be a little easier for us to understand if we keep a few things in mind. First of all, these men who came down from Jerusalem were probably really sincere. I think at least at this point in history, they weren't trying to come and make trouble. They were deeply committed to their conviction that unless a Gentile first became a Jew by circumcision, then he had no right to call himself a Christian. Secondly, no doubt these men had some scriptures that they were relying on to back up what they believed. And their position seemed to be supported by the church at Jerusalem. Now, if you look at verse number 2, Luke says that when this group arrived in the city, that they stirred up no small dissension and dispute. After the Judaizers have arrived, apparently the apostle Peter began to act a little differently. We're told about this in Galatians chapter 2. Apparently before they came, Peter was in the habit of eating and socializing with Gentiles. But after they arrived and they began to give him the evil eye, then Peter had a change of heart. And he withdrew himself, according to verse 12, and separated himself from the Gentiles. Now, not only would that have hurt the feelings of the Gentiles and created a dissension within the body of Christ, it made, according to Paul, it made Peter look like a hypocrite. Even beyond that, Paul says in verse number 14 that they were not acting in accordance with the truth of the gospel. So let's take a look at this problem. First of all, there's the dispute in verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. When this dispute could not be settled within the local body, they decided to appeal to the church at Jerusalem. Now, that's a reasonable suggestion for several reasons. First of all, it's where the apostles could be found. At least most of them were still there. Secondly, it was the church, at least seemingly, that the Judaizers had come from and whose authority they were supposedly acting upon. And now they would either be able to confirm those or confront them about their error. One thing that we have to be aware of as we look at this situation is we have to be aware of bringing our preconceived ideas into a discussion of the nature of salvation. Verse 5 and 6 is in particular importance. It says, but some of the sect 
of the Pharisees who believed, that is, Pharisees who were now Christians, rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. It was natural for some of the former Pharisees to have a, a difficulty in making a clean break with their past as Pharisees. In fact, all of us are influenced by our backgrounds. Every one of us brings from our backgrounds and our past experiences things that can distort how we believe that the Christian life should be lived. The challenge is to identify those points before we allow them to distort how we look at the truth. These men... The Judaizers, we call them, did not deny salvation by grace per se. They did not deny that Gentiles could be saved. They just thought that circumcision should be added to belief in Jesus to be made right with God. So why should we care about a first century church conference. Why should we care? Because it is an essential question. What is necessary for a person to be saved? The distortion of the gospel plan of salvation may be much more prevalent than you understand. There are three approaches to salvation. The first is faith plus works equals justification, or you could put the word salvation there. Faith plus works equals salvation. Now, a few simple questions will help you determine whether or not you believe that. Because you have to answer this question, what do you believe is necessary in order to be saved? Do you have to be baptized? Do you have to eliminate certain habits, drinking, smoking? Do you have to hold to a certain set of theological beliefs? Do you have to be a member of a certain church or a certain denomination? Do you have to have a certain religious experience? And by that I'm talking about an extra third experience such as speaking in tongues. Is that necessary for salvation? Do you need to prefer prefer a certain version of the Bible? Do you need to dress in a certain way? Do you need to cut your hair in a certain way? Do you have to say a certain prayer in a certain way? Do you have to walk an aisle in a church or do you have to raise your hand? If you believe any of those things are necessary for you to be made right with God, then you're following in the same error that we see in Acts chapter 15. In fact, you believe in faith plus works. And no matter what you say that you believe, you believe that works are necessary for salvation. There's a second approach. Faith equals justification or salvation 
minus works. Some churches go to the opposite extreme, and sometimes Baptist churches are guilty of this. Because we teach you are saved forever, once saved, always saved. Some people teach that we are saved by trusting in Jesus alone. And even if we live the rest of our lives following the ways of the world, we are saved. I have a little problem there. In other words, if at some point in your life you walk down an aisle and you shuck a preacher's hand, you're saved. Even if you walk away from the church and never show any evidence that you are really saved. I will only say, beware of a life that shows no spiritual fruit. Third, faith equals justification, which leads to works. Paul clearly states that principle in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved because of anything we do. We are saved by grace through faith alone but not by faith that is alone. James talks a great deal about faith, but he also talks about how it leads to works. I think a true understanding of biblical faith might help us. True biblical faith involves three dimensions, understanding, belief, and commitment. We must understand We have to understand that Jesus gave his life as a payment for our sin. We must know that he rose from the dead and he opened the door of eternity to all that would call upon him in belief. If a person does not understand this, they may have what they call faith, but it is a misplaced faith. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. Second, we must believe. It's one thing to know something. It is something else to believe it. A second group of people tell us that belief alone can save you. And as I said before, unfortunately, James tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, that even the demons in hell believe and tremble. They know it's true. Faith is something deeper than knowledge and just assent to an academic truth. True faith involves surrender and commitment to the truth that you say you believe. Which leads us to the second part, which is the debate, which begins in verse 7. And and Scripture gives us a threefold witness here. There's first of all the witness of Peter. And when there had been much dispute, verse 7, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know the Good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter, who up to this point had just been listening, now stands up and speaks. His first makes the point in verses 8 and 9 that what the Judaizers are advancing, the idea, the position that they're advancing is unnecessary because God obviously has already saved the Gentiles without circumcision. The Judaizers are saying without circumcision, you cannot be saved. And Peter is saying they have already been saved. Secondly, Peter says that he is puzzled why the Judaizers would want to saddle the Gentiles with the same burden of keeping the law that they have been unable to keep themselves. He tells them it is unwise to test God. He says, by refusing to accept the evidence that God is giving to you, you are testing God. And then he ends up by very graciously saying, not that the Gentiles were saved just like us, but we were saved just like them. And then the witness of Barnabas and Paul, just one verse, verse 12, and then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how, how many miracles and wonders God had performed through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas tell of their work among the Gentiles. They support Peter's claim that God is doing a work among them. And the point being that God would not keep doing miracles among them had he not accepted their faith as a response to the gospel. The miracles were witness to the fact that God had accepted these Gentiles. And finally, there's the witness of James. Beginning in verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simeon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Then skip down to verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and blood, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Well, look, first of all, at James's authority. Who is this James? This is not the apostle James. He's already been killed in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. This is James called James the Just. He is the half-brother, according to Matthew 13, of Jesus. He is the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and he is the author of the book of James. James very wisely become, starts his argument by referring to Peter, not Paul. Peter, 
But he doesn't refer to him as Peter, does he? Peter is his Greek name, Petros, which means stone. But by his Hebrew name, Simon. But he doesn't even call him Simon. He calls him by his most Hebrew of Hebrew names, Simeon. He wants them to understand that this is coming from a man like themselves. It was Simeon who had first shown how God had shown his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. It must have been startling for the Jewish listeners to hear James say that he has saved from the Gentiles a people for his, God's own name. Because that is the title that the Jews alone have carried for centuries. James then quotes the Old Testament prophet Amos to prove that God has always been just as concerned about saving Gentiles as he was Jews. And then he gives his advice. He sums up his judgment by first affirming that the Gentiles should not be forced to adopt circumcision or to keep the law of Moses. James mentions four things that the Gentile Christians should abstain from for the sake of not offending the Jews. Three of these were not essential doctrines, but rather matters that took into consideration the feelings of their Jewish brothers. This is important. It's important because this is the very man that the Judaizers said was their champion. And he is declaring himself in full agreement with Peter. He stated there was to be no additional requirement to be added to the Gentiles. He advises the Gentile believers to stay away from anything that has to do with idols. That's an area of sensitivity, obviously. They are to avoid fornication. The, word, the Greek word is pornea. It, it covers any imaginable kind of sexual sin. And they knew all about that in the Greek culture of that day. And they were not to partake of meat that had been strangled or had blood in it. Now some maintain this as a return to the Old Testament laws. But he just said that that does not apply. However, the instructions against eating blood was actually given by God before the law in Genesis chapter 9. And one final point just in passing, that's the decision that was made in verse 22 and following. And then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, whose name was Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. According to verse 22, the apostles and the elders in the whole church accepted the wise counsel of James. But considering the situation, they thought it best to send men chosen from among themselves to go with Barnabas and Paul to Antioch to present this decision and this letter. These men would be better able to confirm the truth of what had been contained in this letter. Now let me just make two summary principles and we'll be finished. Any theology 
any idea, any belief that says that Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was not enough, must be vigorously defended against. Nothing can be added to salvation by grace and it still be grace. Paul says, as we said before in Galatians and Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Just as the first century church found it necessary to be clear on this bedrock of truth, so the church of today must be equally committed against every sign of a gospel plus mentality. The church must insist on maintaining a clear voice in the defense of the purity of the gospel message. In the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, wrote these words. He says, Controversy and religious strife no doubt are odious things, but there are times when they are positive necessity. Unity and peace are very delightful, but they are bought too dear if they are bought at the expense of truth. Controversy, in fact, is one of the conditions under which truth in every age has had to be defended and maintained, and it is nonsense to ignore it. <coughs> and secondly, as people under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. That means that we are not to make areas of lifestyle that are not spelled out in Scripture as normative for others in order for them to be considered good Christians. Let me conclude with this story. A little boy came to the Washington Monument. He saw a guard standing by. And the little boy looked up at the guard and said, I want to buy it. The guard stooped down. He says, how much do you have? The boy reached into his pocket and pulled out 25 cents. The guard says, that's not enough. The little boy said, I thought you'd say that. So he pulled out nine cents more. Guard looked down at the boy and he said, there are three things you need to understand. First, 34 cents is not enough. $34 million is not enough to buy the Washington Monument. Secondly, the Washington Monument is not for sale. And third, if you're an American citizen, you already own the Washington Monument. We need to understand three things about salvation. First, we cannot earn it. Secondly, it's not for sale. And third, if we trust Christ as our Savior, we already have it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the day that you've given us. This day to praise you and lift you up. We pray for that one here this morning that might not know you as their personal Lord and Savior. We pray that the truth would have hit home today. I pray that they might understand by turning to you today in the quietness of this place that they can turn and ask for forgiveness of their sins. Find that forgiveness here by accepting what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Leave this place knowing that they stand forgiven. There may be others who have been saved, but they've never yet had an opportunity to follow through 
made public that decision that they have made or request baptism. Maybe others have been saved for a long time, but they have resisted that first step of obedience as a believer to be baptized and to make that public with the world. I pray you give them the courage to do that. Father, there, there are a multitude of us here who are saved. We know we're saved. But sometimes we come into this place, we're a little beat down by the world. Uh, worlds give us a hard time. Maybe we've had a difficult week. Uh, world pretty well has us convinced that even you don't love us very much. We just need to have a fresh touch from you, leaving, leave here knowing that we're children of the king. And we know how all this is going to end. That we're on the right side. We're not only on the right side, we're on the winning side. So Lord, help us today to regain our strength and our focus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?